0: The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I'm an actress, social justice advocate, and humanitarian.
1: And I am Indana Dayani. I have had an interesting career journey that I can't wait to share with you, but I am most proud of the nonpartisan movement I helped create called I Am a Voter. Welcome to our podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity in our first episode to introduce ourselves and why we created the list of these incredible dissenters. I know that we've all experienced an urge in our lives at some point to give back or scream about an injustice, but taking that first step to actually doing something about it can seem really scary. And there's always that nagging doubt and the many, many questions, and we get it. Balancing personal lives with work and the demands of every day can already be daunting.
0: So we wanted to honor the people who just made the decision one day to do the thing. The thing they couldn't let go of. The thing that kept them up at night. The thing they would forever regret not doing. And through these stories, we will explore the steps they took toward making a difference, how they overcame their fears and managed the insane demands that still awaited them in their personal and professional lives. And we hope through this, we can give you some inspiration, new role models, and even a roadmap to going after your thing.
1: We also wanted to dispel the belief that activism is something that other people do, or that it's something that you need experience for, or you need like tons of followers or tons of money, because none of that is true. I mean, even with our own activism, it kind of just accidentally happened.
0: So a little backstory. Mondana and I are very close friends, and we're constantly sending each other stories of incredible people who are just fucking amazing Mm -hmm. and we thought yeah it's just true and we thought how cool would it be to actually meet them to honor them and figure out how the hell they did all of this. So after months and months of endless hours of research and consideration, we are so honored and can't sit still. We are so happy to present you with our list of the 20 dissenters who blew us away. Each episode, we will meet one of these incredible accidental activists who just made a decision one day to break down the establishment and build a new one.
1: Obviously, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the ultimate hero for both of us because we're giant nerds and she's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So it was no surprise that her iconic I dissent slogan resonated so much with us. You know, standing up for your beliefs or for those who don't have a voice or can't stand up for themselves is what dissenting ultimately is. Deborah and I both have a very long history of dissenting and we just completely fangirl over these heroes all the time. And we thought, before we dive into this podcast series, we could maybe use this episode to share a little background on both of us. Who we are, how we got into activism, what nerds we are, and why we basically created a podcast just so we could meet these heroes in person and force them to be our friends. So, for
0: those of you who don't know my friend Madonna, besides being a hilarious nerd... Loyal and loving friend, a playful and badass wife and mother. She's a visionary. She is a builder of businesses. She sees something that does not exist and brings it to life. The dissenters was actually her brainchild. It
1: was our brainchild. It it was you're the
0: the very first one who said, hey, you want to do a podcast? And I said, sure. Sure. <laughs> that, that
1: was a big part yes, of it. Yes.
0: Um, but then when Mandana told me she made our website, I was like, When did you learn how to build a website? And she said, Yesterday, I just figured it out. <laughs> yeah. So so that's <laughs> Mandana. She's incredibly annoying. <laughs> so <laughs> Mandana has been a fighter her whole life. She came to this country at the age of almost six as a religious refugee. Her family fled war and came with nothing. So why don't we start there?
1: Okay, casual. I like it. (laughs) Also, can you be my publicist and write my Wikipedia page, Deborah? (laughs) (laughs) Done.
0: (laughs) Okay, so you came here as a religious refugee. What was that like? It was
1: terrifying. I mean, I, you know, when we came to America, I was almost six years old. My brother was like almost 10. And I mean, when we left Iran, we ended up going to Italy and we stayed on our neighbor's couch. We had literally no idea what was going to happen to us. Um, and my mom kept petitioning to get us refugee asylum in America. So we came here through an organization called HIAS and they helped us settle so we landed in New York which is the scariest place you can land into when you don't speak English and you've never been to America um and i just remember like holding my mom's hand and 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 just terrified of this big scary place but also so excited because it just felt like opportunity it just felt so safe and i think that I think that's like what kept me and my family so close and kept us together and and really grounded in in how lucky we are, I guess, my whole life.
0: Yeah. I mean, your your family is is so beautifully close and um <laughs> we'll talk more about that later. But um so how did it affect you growing up coming here, you know, uh
1: not speaking the language, trying to learn a new culture? I think it just it makes you really scrappy and really Mm -hmm. grateful. So, I mean, I I think I never took for granted how lucky I was to be here. So I never goofed off. I was very serious about how lucky I was and so acutely aware of how shitty my life could have been if I wasn't here. So I do Mm -hmm. think that instilled like a profound sense of patriotism in me very early. But I think when you have nothing and you feel this tremendous sense of responsibility to your parents who gave up their entire lives for you, there's a lot of pressure. And you can't really mess up. Okay, you started your first give back campaign
0: in fourth grade. That's just bananas. And then you worked for LA Works, organizing volunteer days all through high school and college and helped co-found your first organization called World Child Project, helping orphanages in Mexico become self-sustaining when you were 25. What was the drive behind this badassery?
1: I I don't mean to sound super corny. I just, I think that when you had it really bad and then you have it really good, you are so aware of how lucky and privileged you are. And I, I just think that I felt like some form of guilt of how much America and my parents and life was able to give me, but also just how unlucky other people can be. Because that's Ultimately, half of what it is. It's just luck. And so I always felt this need to want to give back to kind of help set some sort of equilibrium between people on all sides. And and it was, you know, the more of that work that I would do, the more incredible people I would meet. And so it was just this journey of finding amazing people that inspired me and like somehow forcing them to be my friends.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, You did become an attorney. Yes. And go to work in a big firm. What was that like?
1: You know, my parents literally were like, you can be a lawyer or a doctor. And I hated blood. So I became a lawyer. And then I did (laughs) that. And I felt like that was like a a logical path to becoming a, a public servant of some kind. So I went to work at a really big firm, and it was as cool as a big firm could ever get. And the people with there were amazing. And I learned so much about discipline. But it really taught me what I didn't want to do. And, and it was being a lawyer. So I think when you're in a surrounding and you're like, oh, I don't want to be my boss, it just becomes so clear that you're in the wrong place. And I, I was so driven, and there were so many things that I was curious about. And I... I just felt like I needed to break free. How did you transition from a lawyer to a talent agent? Okay, so when you're a Persian immigrant and everyone in your family is a lawyer or a doctor, you don't actually know what a talent agent is. I did not know anything about what other people did. I didn't know like what an architect does. I had no idea what any of these people did. I just knew I didn't want to do what I was doing. And my husband, who was my my boyfriend, I guess, at the time, was like, listen, you just need to ask people that you find inspiring about their jobs. Take them to coffee. Everyone loves talking about themselves. You're not asking them for a job. Just like ask them what they do. And I was like, okay. So I just started harassing people (laughs) Um, and LinkedIn stalking and emailing people and just was like, can I take you to coffee? I think it requires a certain level of self-awareness, but I just remember sitting in those meetings and being like, I would be terrible at that. I would be good, you know. And one day, I sat down with this guy who was a really big commercial talent agent. And he had just told me how he signed a bunch of fashion clients. And he was helping turn them into brands. And I had done so many licensing deals as an attorney. And I loved fashion. I was the most fashion-obsessed, crazy person lawyer you've ever seen in your life. And I was like, I want to do that. And I just looked at him and I was like, can I come work for you on Monday? You literally don't have to pay me. And he was like, what do you mean you're a lawyer? And I was like, I'm just going to come and I'm going to just hang out. I want to see what you do. And if you ever think I had value, you can pay me. And if you don't, it's totally fine. Oh my God. And so I just showed up on Monday and then I just started doing stuff for him. And then um, Rachel Zoe, who was one of his fashion clients that he had brought on, was Had just launched on Bravo and she was... There were so many amazing opportunities with her and I was obsessed with fashion. So we worked together really closely and I worked on the licensing deal to launch her collection. And she looked at me after like seven months of working on this deal and she was like, by the way, when this deal closes, do you want to come launch the collection? And I was like, "Of course, I know everything <laughs> about launching a clock. I literally had never worked in fashion. I knew nothing about anything, but I completely pretended like I did. and And you built her business. it was that's that um, was when it began. It was so much fun. It was so amazing getting to work with like, a real entrepreneur. You know, her and Roger, I think, were, were so ambitious and you know when you have intellectual property like her that's so valuable that can extend to so many different things and it was the beginning of digital media it was the beginning of so many things so we got we built so many businesses together over I think the six years that I worked in house there and and then you ended up on reality TV (laughs) going to produce the show and then the producers asked me if I would be on the show and I was like no 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 no! I'm going to run for Senate and I can't have someone like Google me and everything is going to say like her bangs are so long and I was like that cannot be <laughs> my legacy like my whole life has been like charity and being like obnoxiously perfect at school and I was mortified. So I didn't do any press. I wouldn't do interviews. And then you transitioned to a tech company? Yes. So I do this thing when I feel like I've learned something that I need to learn the thing that I don't know. And so at the last like year or so with Rachel, we did some investing in small businesses and and really started to build other brands. And the Zoe Report, which was the digital media company, was really starting to grow. It was very clear that was kind of the future. And I didn't know tech the way that I thought I should. And so I found this incredible business that was starting to grow really quickly and was like, okay, it's just kind of my process of like diving in, not knowing anything, and then figuring it out. And I did that for about two years. And I had my second daughter, Miller, And really, that was like this huge pause for me where I had to just like reevaluate my life because I was literally forced to from having a child. And there was so much insanity in the world. And it was the first time I had noticed how divided our country felt. And it broke my heart. I know that sounds really corny, but I love this country so much and just seeing the political divide was really hard and I was like okay I can give back because I've given back in so many ways in my career and I sit on all these boards like I want to help senators and congressmen and I don't even know what I wanted to do I just was like I have to do something and I kept taking all these meetings and what I just kept seeing over and over was you know the greatest gap to creating change was was voting and I was like oh well we just have to get people to vote what do you mean that can't be that hard (laughs) There's Mondana. Yeah. Well, I'm like, you know, I mean, if you think about it, like we get people so excited about like watching the new Marvel movie and trying the new mascara that makes your eyelashes six times bigger. Like, how can we make people that excited about voting? It's not like that big of a stretch. So, you know, I started looking at the data, which is what I do because I'm a nerd. And then it became very clear where the opportunity was. And so like I do with every other process, I was like, okay, I understand what needs to happen I'm probably not the person that's going to get this done by myself and emailed the most brilliant women who I know and work with, including you. And I was like, okay, we're going to get in a room and then we're going to figure this out. And these incredible women, I mean, literally, they are so much smarter than me. It is insane. And they, you know, I think together built this campaign and, you know, really... Decided that we wanted to take a very positive, empowering, nonpartisan approach because everything felt so divided on so many things. And the one common ground I think we all felt was like you need to show up for your country. Yes. And um, and when you talk about being a voter something that's so empowering, it's really the one thing that unites us, right? Like our democracy only works if we all participate in it and from that common ground like everything can move forward um so we have been building this campaign for over 2 years and it's been the most amazing rewarding experience of my entire life and it's been
0: unbelievable to to watch it grow from its inception you are really inspiring what what have you learned from that
1: i have learned about the incredible power of community. I have learned that no one can get shit done like women. It's amazing what the women on this team do. And all of us are volunteers. And I have learned that people are inherently good and people want to do good things and they don't always know how to give back and i think that was a really i was so discouraged at the beginning of the process about like what's wrong with everyone why doesn't anyone care and when we started the campaign and we sent out our first batch of like 10,000 emails everyone was like i'm dying to figure out how to participate i'm so thankful that you emailed me i'm so thankful that you made this so easy and and you realize People want to do good. They either don't know where to begin. They don't know how to start. They don't know how to give back. When you and I spoke a lot about this podcast, it was really some of like the driving force behind this was really just giving people the tools to contribute and give back and build community. I mean, regardless of how many great things we've achieved, just sitting in the room with those 25 women, like eating cheese boards and drinking wine is the most fun I have all week. And, And that's such an important part of the whole process is like finding your room of people who inspire you and push you and and like the, who you can build incredible things with. <sighs> okay, I can't talk about myself anymore. No. <laughs> this is like that. I'm not supposed to be in front of a camera. This is very awkward for me person. So um, this is enough. Thank God <laughs> there's no camera. But we've had enough of my story, Deborah Messing. For now. I want to know some things about you. Okay. Okay. So... I always thought you grew up in New York, but you didn't. So you were born in New York, but you grew up in Rhode Island. And then I remember hearing Mm -hmm. from you that you actually started acting and singing in high school. I found high school so terrifying. So I can't actually imagine doing things that would like put me in front of my colleagues and peers. What was that like?
0: Oh, high school was horrifying for me too. I discovered... I actually went to a, a performing arts camp when I was in sixth grade. And that's really when... I became serious. And what made
1: you do that? Like, why did
0: you go to that camp? Were you always interested? I mean, my my mother said that I I was dancing before I could walk. <laughs> I was singing before I could talk. You know, I mean, my mother was a recording artist as a teenager. So, you know, music was on in my house 24-7. And so, you know, there was just always singing. And I started dancing when I was three And as I grew up, I just had this image of I'm going to be a triple threat. I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to sing and dance and act. And I'm going to do all those musicals forever. And I'm going to be happier than anybody else on on this earth. And so for me, it was always about looking forward to that one musical a year that we did. And I found that the theater became my refuge. It became my safe place space. It was the place I was most comfortable. I was more comfortable becoming someone else than being myself. Why do you think that is? I think that, you know, I realized that I felt I was able to be bold and brave without consequences ah. because I was, I was within a story. We were storytelling. So I could be crazy and bold and not be self-conscious, you know, like I was so self-conscious. And, you know, also, I mean, I was I was one of like three Jews in the whole community. And, you know, I, I will never forget, you know, being a kid and coming out and seeing a swastika had been painted on my grandfather's car. What? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah and my mother crying and and i didn't understand what was happening and in second grade a little boy called me a kike and i didn't even know what that word was and all i knew was like i realized i was an other wow i felt like an other from a very young age oh my god it's
1: insane yeah oh my god surprise <laughs> These are crazy things that I don't know how I didn't know. So I feel like not everyone knows what an overachiever you are and how type A you are. Um, Don't head nod at me. Okay, you graduated summa cum laude from Brandeis, which is an incredible school. Then you attended NYU's Tisch School of Arts. And then you earned your Master of Fine Arts. So like, how did you balance this like right, left, brain part of you.
0: Well, first of all, I would never describe myself as like a type A overachiever. I would describe myself as being very hardworking and having a strong work ethic. I think that what happened was my, you know, my parents my parents grew up poor in Brooklyn. My mother, you know, never went to college. And all my parents wanted for us, my brother and I, was to be able to get a good education. And that was the most important thing in our household. And, you know, the basic premise was if you work really, really hard and you are disciplined and you go through the schooling, you eventually can do anything you want to, as long as you're willing to put the work in. And so it was this kind of amazing gift of being, you know, optimistic, like, oh, you want to be an actress? Sure, you can be an actress, which, of course, is a crazy thing to say to any child, you know, but also to say, okay, you want to be an actress, you have to go to college and you have to go get your master's degree and you have to study in London your junior year of college. And after you do all of that education, if you still want to be an actor, go for it. But there was always this this thing, and and I just desperately wanted to be an actress. So I was like, okay, uh, game on. You know, I looked in the mirror. I didn't look like a classic American beauty, and so I thought I was being strategic. I I was like, okay, I'm going to try and get into the best programs, which at the
1: time were NYU, Yale, and Juilliard. Also says the woman who was in People Magazine, Most Beautiful People in the World. But okay, yes, go on. Moving on.
0: <laughs> yes, and you know, I just I just thought, okay, if I'm going to be going up against a thousand people for a part, it will give me confidence to walk into the room knowing that I have a skill set that 99% of the other actors walking into the room don't have. And that it's going to mean something to somebody when they look at my resume.
1: So fast forward to Will and Grace. I mean, literally one of the most iconic shows in our lives. What was it like booking that show? And what was that experience like for you?
0: You know, I had just come off a failed drama called Prey and I was exhausted and I didn't want to audition for it. And I turned it down three times and And then finally, I met Eric at Jim Burrow's house and we immediately hit it off. And I said, yes. And this was right after Ellen's TV show, Ellen, was canceled because she had come out as being gay. Oh, my God. It was was the same year. No. Yes. And so we all looked around and be like, we're going to be off the air in two episodes. People are not going to accept this, but we're going to have fun doing it. And so... Yeah. I mean it ultimately was life-changing. I mean we we wanted to make a show that would make people laugh and give them like a respite for a half hour every week from whatever their stresses were and we we had no idea the social and political impact it would have. You know, it was it was the first time that the LGBTQ community was represented on primetime television from a place of love and respect. And being a part of that, I'm so full of gratitude and and pride.
1: Did you know at the beginning that it was going to be what it was?
0: Never. Really? No, never. We didn't really take off till our second year. I mean, honestly, if we if we did the pilot in this landscape... We probably would have been canceled after the first year.
1: It's fucking crazy. Yeah. Okay. How many Emmys and Globes have you been nominated for? Do you know?
0: So Emmys and Golden Globes, um, fifteen.
1: You realize that's like not normal, right? <laughs> <laughs> I
0: was as, pri- as surprised as anybody when when I was privileged enough to be invited to to that ceremony. I also was nominated for a Razzie, so there's that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, what are five of your favorite projects that you've done other than Will and Grace?
0: Wedding date, along came Polly, Smash, Searching, and the Broadway play Outside Mullingar.
1: So now to why I really love you, which is is your your lifelong commitment to activism. I've literally never met anyone that is as committed to social justice as you. Like the amount of things that you care about and are committed to how well versed you are in them like it's insane you're a walking encyclopedia on all the things that are happening around the world at all times just your commitment to standing up for any injustice that you see regardless of the consequences is genuinely one of the things I love about you so much in addition to just you and I just love everything about you where did that come from it's so deeply ingrained in who you are
0: well, first of all, it's absolutely not true. You know a zillion other people who are are much more active in social justice. But thank you for saying that. And you said it because you love me. But I think no. it all goes back to the swastika on my grandfather's car. I think, I think you know, feeling like an other in a community and feeling like you you have to disappear. And I remember feeling shame that I was Jewish and trying to fit in, you know, and then I think going to graduate school and having this extraordinary teacher, Paul Walker, who was a games teacher who died of AIDS. And he was the first person that I knew who had AIDS. And he was 41. And it was a devastating loss. And I think because of will and grace, I was given a platform. Yeah, and I know the privilege that comes with that platform, and so I just, I, my goal is to use that platform for good.
1: When you just said that, because. I didn't know until recently how extensive your role was as the Global Health Ambassador for PSI particularly on HIV and AIDS. I didn't like I had no idea about all of your travel to Africa to raise awareness and and appearing before the the House Foreign Affairs subcommittee on Africa and Global Health and appearing at the AIDS conference like I I'm guessing that that was a very formative experience. What you just talked about, you know, you have been such an incredible advocate for the LGBTQ community. It's one of the first things I hear them say is how grateful they are to you, and even to Will and Grace for for the exposure it brought, um, and and for the stigmas it helped get rid of, and obviously for your work around HIV and AIDS. But you've also done so much work around the human rights campaign. Every town. Moms Demand Action, Joyful Heart, obviously helping start I'm a Voter. I mean, the the number of hours, obviously that goes into doing that work. But I, I've also just seen you over the last few years and like how many countless nights of sleep you have lost since Trump came into office. Um, you know, you've been so outspoken against some of the policies of the administration that you felt like really hurt specific groups of people. And then I remember one day trump attacking you on twitter and just seeing like the most powerful man in the world with the loudest megaphone attacking you Mm -hmm. and then encouraging other people to attack you was horrifying i mean for me as your friend i was horrified i literally drove to your house and like jumped on your bed and was like what the fuck but i always want to ask you and i and that's probably the second part of this question is is the first part i guess is like What was that experience like for you? Because I can't imagine how terrifying that was. And also just knowing that all of your activism probably resulted in consequences. You probably lost a lot of jobs because of Mm -hmm. it. And I think that that is like something that drives a lot of people. It's like they're afraid of the backlash. They're afraid their boss is going to get mad at them or their friends are going to think they're whatever. But you always seem to believe that the work and the activism was more important and so there is my massive two-part question go deborah okay first of
0: all when when trump tweeted about me
1: i just was in shock
0: i just thought it was surreal but you know the overarching feeling that i had that the thing that kept going through my head was there are children in cages right now and you're using your bandwidth to talk about me really and I mean, that's how I responded to him. It's like, you know, just, just deal with the kids in cages. I mean, it, it was so absurd. It's, it's really absurd because I am nobody.
1: Well, you're not nobody, but all these crazy people are now attacking yeah. you. I mean, it's scary. I think that being over 40, I feel, like, I
0: feel like I learned something really important. And that is not to care about what people think about me. That was an incredibly freeing thing and a very hard thing for me to learn being an actress, you know, who was constantly just trying to fit into a mold um, and wanting to please people. And I realized how exhausting that was. So to, to be able to say, you know what? I don't care what you think. I'm going to do what I feel is the right thing just sits the best for me. You're right. I'm sure I have lost many, many jobs but, you know, I
1: just I feel like
0: I feel like all of these
1: other things are just more important. Like integrity at the end of the day is what you go to bed with. Yeah. And that's more important. And and also,
0: even beyond that, you know, if someone doesn't want to work with me
1: because I
0: have an opinion about not wanting children in cages, then I'm fine not working with them. And I think it also is reflective of me understanding my value. I know that I I have something to offer in you know in, yeah. in my professional realm and that if it's not that
1: it will be something else. That's such a hard lesson to learn. I mean, like even for me, I still like the the struggle of being okay, knowing that people think things of me that I may not want them to, and trying to control the perception of of me as was like a really hard thing to let go of. And I think because I want. Whoever's listening, all three people of you, <laughs> um, to to actually get to know us a little better. I'm going to ask you some like rapid fire questions and you're not allowed to think about these. Okay. Scale of one yeah. to 10. How cool are you? Oh, a one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Typical bedtime. 2.30 uh, <laughs> a.m. <laughs> what is one of your Superpowers. One of my
0: superpowers is sleeping. That is true. I could sleep. I actually slept 17 hours straight
1: once without waking
0: up to go to the bathroom. And it's something I'm very proud of.
1: (laughs) What's a perfect Saturday night like for you, Deborah?
0: Oh, staying in. I've been 102 since I was eight.
1: (laughs) Um, If you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? (sighs) It's going to be some like National Geographic photographer.
0: I was going to say (laughs) G-Girl. Oh my God. Jean Goodall when she was, you know, out on the field, you know, I I would that's I would love to do that.
1: When I dance, I look like, oh, oh, uh, uh,
0: (laughs) a very, very unfortunate, (laughs) middle aged, gawky nerd.
1: Uh, What is the one thing you've always wanted to do?
0: Learn photography. Hmm,
1: A pet peeve.
0: Oh, oh, so many. Tardiness, people
1: being late. Same. Okay. Have you ever been starstruck? Oh, all the time. Most recent starstruckness. Well, the, I think the one that that made me
0: the most starstruck was the first time I met Meryl Streep. I would die.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. What is one goal you have yet to achieve? Being able to
0: uh, incorporate exercise into my life. <laughs> And your favorite housewife. Oh, that's so hard for different reasons. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And also, it depends on the year, right? (laughs) It depends on like what happened. Here goes Deborah's dissertation on the housewife. Oh, my God. I mean. First one that pops your mind. Go. I mean, Bethany. I loved Shannon Bedore from (laughs) (laughs) Orange County. Those were amazing. I
1: actually did learn new things about you.
0: if you were on a desert island real housewives or the bachelor oh jeez, housewives describe your extended family in one word insane (laughs) wine or gummies
1: well during the pandemic it's been both (laughs) (laughs) probably wine having dinner with one living person who would it be robert muller so many questions three favorite snacks Uh, this is disgusting. But um, buffalo wing flavored pretzels, flaming hot Cheetos, and I don't really. What else do I eat? Uh, Chex mix.
0: Okay. Well, that was really embarrassing. (laughs) 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 It's not going to be the first time that we embarrass ourselves, so get used to it. Okay. Without sounding corny, we just want to thank you guys so much for being a part of this journey with us. And for honoring the work of these incredible dissenters, we promise to be honest and vulnerable and to have lots of fun. We can't wait to introduce you to to some amazing heroes, some of whom you probably already know, but many whom you probably don't. I know how much these stories have changed us, and we hope that they give you the courage and hope to find your purpose and chase your passion. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Now, hurry and please go listen to our episode with our first dissenter who is far more interesting than us. The one and only Glennon Doyle, the love warrior. We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani, and you have been listening to The Dissenters. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social. So please tag us at the dissenters at the Real Messing at Mandana Deani, And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. Our music was written by Brady Cohen, and images were shot by Justin Campbell.